Hello, and welcome to the Employee Theft Hub podcast. My name is Greg Wood. I'm an attorney in San Francisco, California. Uh, I've been practicing civil litigation in San Francisco for 20 years, specifically in the areas of um, trade secrets and um, embezzlement cases, both plaintiff and defense. Uh, And so uh, what I would like to do with this podcast, the Employee Theft Hub podcast, is bring together some other people that I've worked with and people that I haven't that are in the employee theft area, either trade secrets or embezzlement. And, uh, you know, ask them questions, see if they can tell us some uh, fun stories, um, then see what we can learn uh, from their various experiences. So uh, we'll get right to it. And uh, like I said, welcome. If you have any questions, uh, feel free to email me, gwood at woodlitigation.com. All right, we're here with uh, Joe Rosenbaum of uh, Rosenbaum and Company in in Marin County, a forensic uh, consulting firm. Hello, Joe. Hi, Greg. How are you? I'm doing pretty good. Thanks for uh, thanks for being on my uh, show here, show slash experiment. Um, no problem. Happy to do it. <laughs> thank you. First question. Uh, let's introduce you. Can you tell everybody a little bit about yourself? Maybe just give us, uh, you know, your website website bio, pick and choose what you want people to know. Oh, sure. Uh, well, I am a forensic accountant and my, um, my, uh, my background includes investigating, uh, financial fraud, both, uh, uh, financial misstatement fraud and also employee misappropriation and embezzlement and that sort of thing. Um, I've done this kind of work for over 35 years. And when I was thinking about that, it was, uh, yikes, over 35 years. But, uh, but that's how long it's been, uh, mostly with, with the large, pi- private, uh, large public accounting firms, some of the big, the big four. Uh, I had a great opportunity out of college. I had my background was uh, accounting undergrad. I have an MBA and a, and a law degree. But right out of college for my first paid gig, um, I had the opportunity to do an internship with uh, with Arthur Anderson in two locations in Europe, and in the Netherlands and in Switzerland. And so that sort of steered me uh, on a career path toward public accounting. So when I got back to San Francisco, um, I was uh, I was already employed and uh, decided, however, I wasn't going to be an auditor. But they had they had a couple of projects that involved uh, forensic accounting. So I began there and uh, and haven't looked back. Um, I uh, I was a partner at both Arthur Anderson and at Ernst and Young, and one of my crowning achievements at Ernst and Young was founding Ernst and Young's data discovery practice, where we would uh, do everything from uh, capturing email and uh, sorting through it uh, to looking through the the metadata of various documents. So that's very handy when you're doing particularly large scale investigations. Uh, I've, I've been involved, like I said, in, in, uh, in very many large cases and small cases. I testified in the largest case ever brought against the United States, the largest class action suit uh, back in Washington, DC um, with the, uh, Anywhere from 250 to 500,000 class members with allegations that uh, exceeded 100 billion at one point, um, and uh, all the way down to 
to assisting on uh, on my smallest case. I'm thinking about that, and that was one where an individual was uh, was stealing money uh, out of the till at a charity Christmas tree sale. So that's a bit of my background, Greg. And yeah, that's any, any questions that's pretty about good. that? <laughs> yeah, I don't know what to ask about the uh, the case against the United States or the Christmas tree till. Which one's more interesting? <laughs> Uh, I tell you what, though, having done this now for a long time, and even in the paper, you see it, there, there is a lot of nonprofit theft. Um, you know, you, I see all these stories about, uh, you know, the booster club and the coach takes all the money for himself or whatever. But um, anyway, the Christmas tree story uh, made me think of that. So, But tell me about this case against the United States. What was that about? Well, it's well, it's a very interesting case. Um, it's called the Cobell case, um, but it it relates to um, starts back in the 1800s. Actually, um, I actually, I've done a couple of cases that are very historical in nature, but this particular one, back in the 1800s, um, the uh, United States government were trying to resettle Native Americans and were allocating plots of land around the West uh, with the intention that, that, uh, that these individuals would homestead. Um, but at the same time, and the, uh, you know, the thinking of the time was that, you know, the, the Native Americans couldn't manage their own affairs so that the government stepped in and was going to do it for them in trust. And so they created a very, a very uh, extensive trust system wherein the government was is going to uh, account for it would would lease the land uh, on behalf of all the individuals, keep an account for them, um, and uh, you know, and, and provide it, uh, you know, every year the, the you know the benefits. Um, some people had had land that was was uh, valuable with. Um, timber and grazing. Some had oil, which was even more lucrative. Anyway, uh, at some point in time, there was an allegation that maybe the government wasn't um, doing their trust accounting correctly and and that some of the money was being misspent and misused and put into the general fund, etc. And so there was a was a class action uh, brought against uh, brought against the government um, asking uh, for an accounting of all of these funds from, from way back, uh, from way back when, um, 60 minutes did, a, did an episode on it. Um, but it was really quite an interesting thing that, but we were engaged, uh, to look at some of the named class members and trace their, their funds and their accounting all the way back to the 1800s forward to today. Well, that is, that is some serious forensic work for sure. How do you spell that? Cobell? Cobell, C-O-B-E-L-L. Got it. Interesting. Well, there we go. I started out with a pretty good one right there. Um, my my next question to you was, um, so it, where do you work now? You have your own shop in uh, Marin County, right? Yes. Yeah, so I took early retirement from Ernst & Young in 2010 and in 2011 um, formed um, um, 
my my firm, Rosenbaum and Company. So let, let's thank you for telling me, uh, telling us, telling everybody about your your past there. Um, and I will just add um, that uh, I, I will repeat that I, I've worked with you um, and some of your staff uh, with great success. Um, we worked on a case together recently in which we got a, a jury verdict for ten million, which of course I'm going to repeat in every podcast that. <laughs> episode that I that I can because I'm proud of it. Uh, but anyway, you were a part of that, and uh, you you did great. Well, Rosenbaum and Company did great work there, um, and you yourself gave a great uh, expert witness presentation. So, and you do um, in addition to just doing the forensic work, you, you've testified in court a number of times. Is that right? Yeah, I've just testified a number of times, uh, um, but then there's also there have also been numerous times where. Um, for whatever reason, we have decided uh, to not have uh, testimony, and that's that's always an interesting that's always an interesting uh, discussion. Um, we had uh, we had one another historical case where it, it was a very complicated case, and the uh, we were working um, as potentially an expert would be called for for the defense in a in a very significant broad um, matter and the more we discussed findings the more the defense counsel decided that it would make better sense to use our team as consulting experts as opposed to testifying experts and so we were then um, then made aware of a lot of uh, previously privileged information, um, and that freed us up quite a bit. That was really quite an, uh, an interesting experience, I, I will say, to be, you know, really on the team of, of legal counsel and uh, and providing providing insight and and, uh, and suggestions as to how things ought to proceed. Yeah, well, but to answer your question, but to answer your question, yes, um, yes, we 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 are always prepared uh, to to testify on just about any case we begin. Um, as you know, most cases settle, uh, but at the same time, um, we we begin every case with the thought and knowledge that we are likely uh, to be called to testify. You know, the case that we worked on. Um involved employee theft, but obviously uh, forensic investigations um, go beyond that. Um, you know, just for the for the completely naive uh, and new to the world of forensic investigation, what's under the umbrella of forensic investigation in addition to, you know, finding out if employees stole or um, if another business partner um, have has taken money, what 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 else can forensic investigations involve? Well, a lot of times, and I mentioned this briefly earlier, um, of the uh, the use of um, of data data discovery, and um, you know, for, forensic accounting, I think now encompasses such a such a broad a broad scope. So it's not simply looking at uh, sort of the transactions and seeing how things were booked and the underlying um, records. And I will tell you a story about one of those. <laughs> uh, but also, um, uh, you know, getting into the into the electronic data. So we will have teams together side by side with uh, with legal teams um, looking through 
email. Um, so we'll do our searches through through the various uh, you know historical email batches. We can sort it out between things that have that hit on the accounting. It can be accounting terms and and uh, and separate those out from the legal. A lot of times we'll just do it shoulder to shoulder. Um, but that is a you know that's something we do uh, a great deal of. Um, now I don't have my own uh, data discovery practice, but uh, but have relationships with some with some very good uh, data discovery shops uh, that allow us to do that. Um, we also do a lot of interviewing, uh, and that's really one part of the job that really does benefit from experience. Um, when you have done all of the, the background work that you can, you've looked through emails, you've looked through the documentation, um, you've, you've seen how transactions have been accounted for, and you're, you're armed now with what you, what you think might be the uh, the situation uh, you start you start conducting interviews um, usually start with those that are going to provide you some background all the way up to those that uh, that you suspect might be actually involved as a perpetrator and um, it it is a it is a skill that uh, can be and needs to be developed. It's not something that you can just uh, just jump in and and uh, and be good at straight away. Yeah, yeah. The remind takes me back to my first deposition, and I I, uh, I can't imagine what that was like, but I'm sure I was pretty bad at it. <laughs> but you know, 20 years later, and now I know it. You know, it, it, it's much more of an art. Um, asking questions and picking up on um, cues from the uh, examinee. Um, exactly. Then, I mean, you know. it's it, it, yeah, it's one thing to have your uh, your outline and what you think is going to go, but uh, I will tell you s numerous times um, I have thrown away the outline after the first question because the response gives you uh, a whole new insight as to what what is going on. All right, so why don't you tell us uh, about, um, you know, you've been doing this for obviously uh, a number of years. Um, we won't count them, but uh, a number of years. And uh, you've got, uh, you know, a lot of uh, cases and stories behind you. And so uh, maybe you could tell us about your most interesting um, either embezzlement or employee theft or, you know, really anything. Uh, but we're, our focus is, is uh, you know, in the employee uh, arena here. Um, so if you got a story from there, great. But uh, tell us what what you know going looking back on your your career, <laughs> what's a case that jumps out at you from your work? You said it's very similar to to the to the one we worked on. It was a situation where a small startup company um, that left the uh, the payroll and check processing in the hands of a single individual. And that happens a great deal. Um, you can, uh, you know, bigger companies, you've got internal controls, you've got your checks and balances, um, you've got different people that would have to get involved in order to, to perpetrate, a, 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 you know, certain kinds of frauds. But in smaller companies, a lot of times the, the owners are focused on growing the business or making the business better or inventing a new product. Um, and aren't really as focused on on the background. 
the 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 funny one that I will tell you is one. It's, it's not funny from the the company standpoint because they had a, an individual in charge who, over the course of only a year and a half, but a brand new employee had come in to be responsible for payroll and and uh, and accounts payable, had um, set set up several different fictitious vendors that that she was paying um, that were actually going directly to her bank account. Uh, she set herself up uh, to be paid twice. So she was listed twice on the payroll reports, but through a quirk that I identified to the, um, to the uh, payroll processing company, a very large payroll processing company, uh, she was able to to process these double payments to herself, but then enter a correction that that um, that would show that the the double payment had been reversed. In fact, the cash had gone out, but the report was was uh, was changed so that when if anyone did look at the monthly report. Uh, it would seem as though the payroll was correct, even though uh, an additional check had been written um, twice a month. Uh, but this went on and probably would have gone on without the the uh, the notice of the two founders of the company who were, like I said, busy doing something else. But what happened was um, a CFO of a different company called the owners of this particular company and said, we don't do any business, but why did I just receive a very large check from your company? And it turned out they did a little bit of research. The uh, the perpetrator uh, had a spouse that worked at this other company. And over the course of the year, when one or other of the companies had a cash shortfall, this husband and wife team would simply wire money back and forth to the other company to help them cover their their uh, their cash flow issues unbeknownst to ownership of either either of the two small companies and so it turns out that wasn't uh, you know they didn't take any of the money they were just helping each other out uh, but it did uncover the fact that uh, that no or sort of pointed the fact that nobody was actually minding the store and that they were able to get away with a lot of things so that was a uh, that was one that I one of the more unusual ways that that fraud was uncovered um, as opposed to to finding it through an audit or uh, or an internal control yeah it is actually it brings up a good point it's interesting how these things get uncovered how how much did the the perpetrator take in that case do you remember i do uh i mean here we're talking about a company like i said it was a startup that had only approximately $10 million in sales and over a year and a half, this employee had uh, had walked away with somewhat over a million and a half dollars. So, uh, I mean, it was on the one hand astounding that these founders did not realize that a tenth of their sales had been, uh, had been uh, embezzled, but, um, but they were, like I said, they were busy on other, other things. Yeah, I am. Uh, I'm really reluctant to blame the victim, but in each one of these um, embezzlement cases, there is uh, there is uh, some 
room to do that. <laughs> I, um, uh, you know, I've been on the, the defense and the prosecution side. And uh, in, in every case, there's, um, you, you know, you do have to go to management at some point and say, what, you know, uh, did you did you ever look at a at a financial document, <laughs> you know, for for 12 months or beyond? Because um, had you looked at it, you might have you might have seen some of these things that, you know, over time sort of get more and more glaring and obvious. And, and on that, that, that is a situation and, and uh, you know, where you've got an individual that um, is completely in charge of, 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 you know, there's really no oversight, as you point out. I mean, no one really ever looks. But there are other situations, and, and another one that I'll tell you that, you know, in, involves a little collaboration. And this is one where it, uh, it, it it's, a, it's a fraud nonetheless, but it was one that was sort of widely known, but I don't think a lot of the participants actually viewed it as such. And it was, it was one that we, we kind of stumbled upon in doing, um, in doing some um, investigation about one aspect of, of a division of a very large Fortune 500 company. But what we what we noticed were you know some some odd accounting for reserves and reserves are it's it's an accounting construct where you're essentially putting money away for uh, for a rainy day or for for <laughs> I shouldn't say it that way but that, that's the way it sometimes is done but but you you've got an unforeseen event or an un, sorry an unquantifiable event that you know is going to take place in the future. And so you uh, you might reserve uh, some money set aside for it. I know um, that uh, just we had as, a, as examples. I mean, companies have insurance companies obviously have reserves for each case because they don't know what the ultimate outcome is going to be. But also manufacturers, right? They have uh, for like warranty claims that they maintain uh, fairly decent reserves. And actually, that's exactly what was going on here. It was, in fact, a warranty claim. But the the interesting thing is that the the warranty expense seemed to seemed to vary a little more than you would would have expected. And ultimately, we we determined that the management team of this division was being compensated in a in a bonus uh, arrangement by whether or not they met certain profitability measures, which is not uncommon. But the thing is that uh, every quarter, they either just barely met the profitability standard or missed it by a great deal. And comparing the bonus calculations to how they were setting the reserves pointed out quite clearly that they were using if they had a particularly um, uh, horrible quarter where they knew they were not going to uh, make their bonus targets, they would go ahead and and uh, set reserves at a very high level. In other words, set aside a lot more money. And then in a, in a quarter where there was going to be a close call, they would reduce these reserves and therefore increase, increase profitability increase profitability and therefore um, have the bonus kick in. So it was, it was quite, a, um, quite an interesting discovery, which 
I will say, uh, did not go over well at the board level when we were making the presentation since the, um, since the CEO of that division had been thought of as a likely successor in a few years to the, to the CEO of the, of the company. Yeah, that sounds like a good one. And, and give us um, some insight. So uh, in a situation like that, who hired you to do what? Um, you know, how did this thing unfold? What kind of work did you guys do? Um, just sort of, if you can deep dive a little bit into the work on that case, just to give people an insight into, you know, what a forensic investigation in that sort of context looks like. Well, in that context, we are, when, when they're in this, like I said, it wasn't necessarily just this bonus, but there were some other, some other things. But if there is any, uh, in, in this particular case, there was an indication that there might be some um, financial um, uh, financial statement misrepresentations or manipulation. And so in that case, which is, which is common, if there is a suspicion that maybe there might be someone in the quote management chain involved, um, the the, the, the board of directors will step in. And so it will, it will be set up as an investigation by the board. And in many cases, they'll set up a, a small subcommittee of the board of directors to, to be more hands-on and involved in this investigation. And so we as forensic uh, accountants would work together and under the purview and privilege umbrella of, of outside counsel and conduct an investigation to see whether or not any of the allegations were were true or whether they were were, were not true. Um, at the same time, if we uncover anything else that um, that might be a problem, you know, we're obliged to bring that to to everyone's attention as well. But in in many of the cases that I've worked on, uh, we have been. Um, our, our client, so to speak, is is the board of directors or a subcommittee of the board. And so we would conduct our investigation. We would, as I said, uh, you know, one of the examples earlier, we would and did get um, get email from from uh, a number of people that we could then sort through and and see if there's any discussion about uh, any of the financial statement misrepresentation. We looked at a lot of the records and then we conducted interviews. And ultimately what we do is we present our findings to the board of directors. The board of directors then um, has to make a decision as to what to do, whether it's going to be um, uh, you know, dismissing management or some somehow, uh, uh, you know, dealing with dealing with with management at that level but to some some of the cases then they have to decide whether or not they're going to report it to either both the doj and or the um the sec so that either the if it's a publicly traded company the securities exchange commission wants to know about any issues with uh, with financial statements and the department of justice likewise likes to know about any any fraudulent manipulation Right. So in this case, you were this manufacturer, uh, the board of directors must have had some suspicion of, you know, or at least wanted to, to run something down, hired you guys. Um, and, and then you guys came in and uh, probably, probably not welcome 
<laughs> by the at least by the warranty division uh, folks um, th that were being investigated. But uh, you go you go in and start asking for records and emails and um, start conducting interviews. And uh, where do the interviews happen? Do they happen on the company's premises or somewhere else? Uh, almost all interviews will happen on com company premise. Um, there have been situations where you know we can we can do them remotely, or or someone would prefer not to be seen talking to uh, you know the, the folks doing investigations. So you would rather not be seen on site. But but by and large. Uh, a conference room is set up, and and we'll come and and just invite people in to uh, to have their interview their interview taken. And do they know? A, but yeah, do, do they know why you're there, or do you do you have to say you're there for a different reason? Something you know more. No, it, it, there there have been times where we are you know viewed more as uh, you know sort of regular auditors, um, but by and large, there's no real reason to. To sugarcoat it, uh, or to or to try to, you know, to try to do anything too too sneaky. It's it's usually known. We don't advertise it, um, but word gets out. It's amazing how how the water cooler talk and the grapevine uh, will will announce your presence uh, within an hour of arriving on site. Yeah, in that case that you were talking about with the warranty and the reserves, was it? I mean, did management? Uh, uh, the the how many people were involved with the scheme? There were. I uh, this was. Uh, I going to say not many, maybe three or four. Um, and like I said, I don't know that they really viewed it as being that bad, unfortunately, uh, and that maybe. That maybe uh, you know infects a lot of white collar crime is that um, I think they were simply of the opinion that this is the way this is the way things were done, um, and if it had been done that way the the prior quarter or quarters before, let's just continue to do it. That's just the the way the way work is done, and I've I've seen that on other in other occasions too, where where people are. Uh, you know, fail to really ask a hard question of themselves. What what exactly are we really doing, and is this is this right? Um, but in that case, we we did interview folks, and and they explained. I mean, there, there's when you have the documentation and you have email evidence, and you 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 already know going in or have a a real suspicion as to what was going on. It's very difficult for someone to. To try to uh, to convince you otherwise, um, some try, but but most will will acknowledge what was done and uh, you know maybe try to make an excuse. But um, in this situation, we we never did interview the CEO, the CFO directly. Um, we got to the point where we knew exactly what was happening. Um, it didn't really we didn't really need to. To, to interview that individual, um, we just presented to the board, and, and the board, um, in that case, did go to both DOJ and the SEC. Um, but they also disciplined the uh, the CEO. I think uh, I think he was was let go very unceremoniously soon thereafter. Right, right. And you did another thing that uh, you touched upon is uh, you know there is a I don't know what you know a psychologist. 
Um, maybe I'll have a psychologist on my uh, new show here at some point, but um, there is this sort of amazing, um, I'm going to call it an entitlement, a sense of entitlement, uh, even in the most egregious employee theft where they're just taking money. Um, they do, they will find so many ways to rationalize and justify what they were doing. Um, you know, and, and it's just, um, it, you, you very rarely, if ever, see any remorse from, <laughs> from them, uh, any recognition that, oh, yeah, you're right. This was, you know what, this is theft. You know, they could even, even the ones that, you know, get the FBI gets involved and they go to prison. Um, I've taken their deposition and uh, none of them have said, yeah, I, you know, I screwed up. You know, that was a bad thing. Ne never hear that. I'll tell you one more story, Greg. I, I hope you have time. Uh, <laughs> I do. Yeah, yeah. Let's there, was, there was one there was one case where um, and, and it was kind of interesting. I'm trying. I don't remember exactly what uh, what prompted the investigation, but we were working um for the board in a in a, a company it was a private company but they they had had hopes of of going public um and so it was a built up by the ceo he was a very hands-on um ceo he had a fairly compliant cfo chief financial officer uh, they had hoped to take the company public but it kind of run into some problems the the sales were, uh, were, were a bit lagging and they didn't think they were going to be able to, uh, to go public, but they then pinned their hopes on trying to, um, trying to, to sell it to a bigger company. Um, and this would benefit, uh, you know, everybody in the, in, in the company, obviously, uh, you know, an IPO would allow everyone to cash in some of the, some of the stock that they had or the options that they had. Uh, obviously, more benefit to the to the uh, to the officers, um, but they started down this slippery slope and um, started doing some things that were that were really that were really bad. Um, they started falsifying sales, you know, saying that that the shipments were made and and putting them over in the corner of the warehouse. This is some of the things that. Uh, maybe you or your listeners have, have heard about, but that that does happen. This was, uh, you know, a company here in the U.S., but we're making a lot of sales in in Asia. Um, but one of the others we tried to do to get it ready for sale, and a sale was being negotiated, uh, was to show that their gross margins were 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 really good, um, but that they were just spending a lot of time with your with sales and that was why the company wasn't very profitable so they had a real incentive to to show that the gross margins were okay uh and i'll briefly explain that in a financial statement uh, a gross margin is essentially a calculation of how much every sale is going to benefit you so if every sale is 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 worth a lot of money that's great and then you can still lose money by by trying to increase the number of sales uh, through some of your marketing efforts and, th and things like that. But the, the gross margin, um, how much money you make on every, on every sale is a, is a, is a widely looked at um, metric. So one of the things that these, um, that they did uh, were 
they started cutting their prices, but they didn't want to to show this because the gross margin would would suffer. So instead, they created some documentation that uh, made some of these discounts for the discounted revenues appear as if they were marketing costs. And so even though the bottom line is the same, it looks a little better to someone thinking of buying the company. Uh, the board, as we, we were doing this and we didn't really have a lot of hard documentation. We, we had heard, uh, you know, a number of these things. We had not yet visited Asia. We, we were pretty sure that we understood what the code, code words were in the email that we were listening to. But the board was still a little in disbelief that this would happen and could happen. And during one of the presentations uh, that I made, uh, which changed their mind completely, was was one in which I, I said, "Okay, here are here are a number of documents, and I'm going to walk you through and explain why we think it is the way we are. But I want you to take these next two, and I want you to hold them up to the light, put them together, and hold them up to the light." And what you can see is that there, there, these two documents were exactly the same, except that the middle part of it had been whited out and changed from one document to the other. And I had received these two documents during an interview in someone's office where I was simply talking about how they did document these, uh, these various discounts and uh, the individual did not think they were doing anything wrong, just doing what they were told and had kept copies of both the original and the, uh, and the one that had been whited out and changed. So that, that definitely changed the entire tenor of the investigation. <laughs> yeah. At that point, we, we, yeah. uh, we never, we never got to interview the, uh, the CEO because he fled the country to, uh, to his home in a, in a foreign country that did not have an extradition uh, treaty with the United States. <laughs> now that is a good story. Yeah, I, I definitely think if you're getting the whiteout out, that uh, that right there should trigger something in your mind. <laughs> Something's wrong. Um, it, you, these days, and you know that you know nobody uses whiteout, but uh, still, it's a yeah, it's a fun, that's a fun one. Go ahead. You know, you know, Greg, nobody uses whiteout anymore, but. Um, Documents now are are just as easy to manipulate. You can manipulate PDFs, and um, that I think is uh, you know it, it is a big challenge now because it is it is easy to change electronic documents, and and the only way to really understand and combat that is to have uh, someone look at the metadata of documents you do. It's not sufficient any longer to simply look at a hard copy document you really you really need to uh, to look at uh, look at the underlying the underlying electronic document and so that kind of ties into what you were saying when you were just describing some of the the experience that you have I guess so you were talking a lot about uh, that discovery practice and and uh, you know forensic investigations being more than just following the money um, which is you know at, a, at least, it, you know, one pillar of what forensic investigation is, I'm, I'm sure you'd agree, but it sounds like another pillar, especially in this day and age, like you say, with with electronic documents so easily manipulated, 
um, that it really to be a, you know, any good forensic investigator is going to need to know um, what to look for when it comes to, uh, you know, it, you know, just looking at invoices and records and just being able to tell by looking at them saying, hey, you know what, this one's a little bit off. This one is worthy. We need to dig into this a little bit more. Absolutely. Uh, you know, um, a healthy sense of skepticism or maybe even an unhealthy sense of skepticism is is sometimes required uh, when doing some of these investigations. You mentioned startups a couple of times and doing some work in that space. There's so much money to be had when these companies convert, whether it's you know going public or being bought or whatever. There's so much pressure, um, you know, to to make sure the deal goes through to, or to, to even get the company to be inviting, and then you know step two to make sure the deal goes through. Um, really, a lot of pressure on on people, and they, and they have so much. They stand to make so much money. Uh, it seems to me that's just an area that's that's ripe for fraud or just very inviting for fraud. Well, I I, I will tell you that's absolutely correct, and and you've got different uh, you've got different motivations, and so there's I'll, I'll explain one one other recent uh, investigation that we did, um, and you know it was a it was a startup company that was. Uh, invest the, the several of the investors were, you know, well-known, well-known individuals and well-known companies that had put money into this. Um, ultimately, the uh, you know the company was 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 not viable, um, and so they commissioned uh, an investigation as to what went wrong. Um, you know, in an attempt to to point blame, and there were instances of uh, expense account abuse. There were you know large parties and and uh, first class travel to go to different conferences and things like that um, that you could classify as as a problem. But the but the truth of the matter was is that the the investors were hoping just like everybody else that this was going to be a home run company and whether they knew of some of these you know abuses or whether they uh you know chose to ignore them they were fairly obvious if if they had taken any opportunity to uh, to look at all and these were sophisticated invest investors um but it's only after the music stops that that suddenly, uh, you know, they want to assign blame. So there, there are a lot of situations that are a little different when it comes to startup companies in in today's uh, today's environment, because so many of these startup companies can get very big very quickly, uh, you know, and uh, and and make a lot of money for for the founders and early investors. Yeah, and you a know, lot of them, a lot of them go belly up. You know, what always surprises me, too, is, um, you know, I, I think it's almost a myth that that if you have a financially, you know, an audited financial statement, uh, that somehow the company's clean. And I mean, I, I do work with accountants, so um, I know, you know, and anybody who's got an audit, they, the engagement letter says, we're you know, the audit's not going to detect fraud. It's not designed to detect fraud. And yet that's really the main tool that investors use 
um, you know, when determining money, you have an audited financial statement. Okay. And they, they sort of stop there. <laughs> and, and, uh, it's just, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, but an audited financial statement is not designed to detect fraud. It's just, it doesn't tell you whether fraud's going on. No, you are, you are 100% correct. And, uh, there is actually a term for that in the, in the world of, of accountants, and it's called the expectation gap. And that expectation gap uh, is exactly what you describe. Um, an audit opinion is um, states very clearly what it is and what it isn't. Um, but but you're right. Uh, some tend to view it as uh, as a little bit more broad than it's intended. So over the over the over the years, uh, different of the regulatory bodies have have added requirements that um, auditors consider fraud in their audit uh, in order to kind of, you know, help narrow that expectation gap, but it's it's not completely narrowed there. But you're absolutely right. Uh, audited financial statement is not a guarantee that the company is sound or well-managed or going to be around for for longer than well, there's there's one provision. You know, if it's a going concern, it's you have questions as to whether it's going to last a year. But if, right, it's, right. if there's no question that it's going to be able to make it through a year, there's no guarantee that it's going to be ultimately successful. So there is that big expectation gap, um, and that uh, that is why a lot of times accounting firms get sued, but 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 generally are able to be uh, dismissed from from suits pretty quickly um, based upon the, the audit opinion, what it says and says it's doing and what it's not doing. Yes. Yes. I have, uh, like I said, I, I defend accounting firms and um, we're usually able to get out uh, based on you know, stated in the engagement letter and in the opinion itself. Um, unless there was, you know, unless there was something done wrong with the audit. Um, but if the audit was done correctly, um, the, the fact that there was fraud was not detected doesn't keep the accounting firm in. Well, thank you, Joe. I really appreciate you taking the time. You've obviously got some awesome uh, war stories there, uh, very interesting cases. Uh, if CEOs are fleeing the country, I don't know how you can beat that. <laughs> that is a job well done, I would say. If you've, uh, if you've caused management to hop on a Cessna, fly away. Um, so anyway, thank you very much for uh, taking time. I really appreciate it. Um, I would encourage anybody who, uh, I mean, we're in the San Francisco community, so I, I could see, you know, any, any startup who um, is under pressure, um, you, you know, and is, is suspects uh, something it, to, to call you and any other, anybody else too, that is in these uh, forensic, forensic work. But th thank you very much. Okay. Not a problem, Greg. I'll talk to you soon. Okay. Have a good one, Joe. Okay. Thanks. Thank you.